Welcome to the fourth season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I am honored to bring you these compelling conversations. This season's theme is scaffolding. Guests will be sharing all the ways in which we can create scaffolds for students, teachers, and schools that promote agency, equity, and understanding. Of course, we will continue to link these conversations to the strands of the PEBC teaching framework by focusing on community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment strategies. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, Dr. Marley Bunch and Brittany Collins are back on PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast to dive into a grand conversation about planning for instruction that is both anti-bias and anti-racist and supportive of students' social and emotional learning. Earlier this season, Marley and Brittany helped us think about the intersection of ABAR education and SEL and the importance of cultivating school communities that support the healing journeys of students and educators, especially as everyone embarked on the 22-23 school year. Marley is an educator with over 16 years teaching experience. She holds two graduate degrees and recently completed her doctoral degree from the University of Illinois. Her study illustrates the impact the long history of segregation, Brown versus Board of Education, and desegregation efforts had on the teaching experiences of Black female educators, particularly between the years of 1950 to 1970. Brittany's work explores the impacts of grief, loss, and trauma in the school system, as well as how innovative pedagogies from inquiry-based learning to identity development curricula can create conditions supportive of all learners. Brittany is the author of Learning from Loss, a Trauma-Informed Approach to Supporting Grieving Students, which was published in 2021 and was recently released as an audiobook that was narrated by Marley. Welcome back, you two. There is so much to catch up on and so much to celebrate. How are you both? We are doing well. So happy to be back in the space with everyone today. Appreciate you having us. Thanks so much, Michelle. Nice to be back with the PEBC community and, and good to be here with you, Marley. Well, I have been looking forward to this conversation all week. Um, so Marley, you are now Dr. Marley Bunch. Congratulations. Um, and you are also awaiting your publication of the Unlearning the Hush Framework. So fill us in. What has your fall been like? It has been, um, so my doctoral journey was um, through the University of Illinois, and it was such an incredible experience. I had great mentors. Um, My study connected me with some really fantastic and phenomenal educators. Um, And so my fall has just been busy wrapping that up and enjoying all that that encompassed. That sounds like so much synthesizing and so much celebration. Congratulations. So Brittany, Learning from Loss is being released as an audiobook, and Marley was your narrator. So yeah. tell us, how has your fall been, and what was the process like for you? Yeah, it's such an honor to have Marley be the voice of this story. It's also special that she and I are able to record this episode with you today. Today marks the one-year book birthday, I guess, as we call it, of Learning from Loss, um, and Marley has just been such a, an amazing friend, mentor, um, guide for me in the field. I started student teaching with her back when I was an undergrad, and so being able to collaborate throughout this journey 
um, later on in my career and to continue learning from her um, and have her give voice to a story that feels really personal and also really important to my own professional path and hopefully to the professional paths of many other folks in the education and youth work space. Um, it's just been such an honor. And, and likewise, this year has been really um, humbling to be able to connect with so many communities of educators, of mental health professionals, of social workers, you know, folks in the kind of youth work space that I um, may not have been otherwise able to learn from and connect with because it extended even beyond education, this conversation about loss and grief and trauma-informed care um, in, in work with young people. So a big honor all around and lots of learning. Wow. Thank you, Brittany. And, you know, again, celebration and synthesis. I think that might be our theme today. Um, you know, it's such a joy to have the two of you together once again. Um, in our last recording, I think, you know, many listeners remarked on just your incredible friendship and your collegial relationship and just the way that you have taken collaboration to this next level. So for today's conversation, I think that we're just going to be able to really dive into both of your hearts and your minds. And I thank you for bringing your hands to this work. Um, today, we're going to focus in on planning. And so when I think about planning, I think about that intersection of the art and science of teaching, right? There's so much what to teach, but really the planning is how. How do we create those learning spaces for all children, for all learners? How do we create spaces that foster student agency, student equity, and student understanding? And so today, we're going to really dive into this conversation of what's one way we can think about our planning in in light of everything that teachers have really on their plates right now. And to think about the goals that so many educators hold in their hearts and their minds of wanting to create more equitable spaces for learners. So Marley, do you want to kind of kick us off and help us establish the focus for our conversation and really share the big picture around the unlearning the hush frameworks and frameworks in general? Sure. Um, just, Kind of like you mentioned, I think we know that teachers have so much that they're faced with right now. We also know that research has illustrated that we need cultural competencies in the classroom. We know that they offer all students many benefits. So um, I think that there are lots of tools and frameworks available to teachers, but what seemed to be missing that I realized after doing my research was um, from that big picture, we're missing the voices of past educators who really could offer their guidance and their expertise, I think, to current and to pre-service teachers. So um, many of those teachers are still alive. They navigated times that um, were not too different from where we're at today, uh, racism, segregation, violence, and, and so forth. And so I think what we can learn from them um, is really important. And then how do we use oral histories, stories, and history in general to forge relationships and coalitions with one another? Um, my participants were so brilliant at connecting community and advocating for students. I think that we have overlooked connecting these voices and their expertise to the issues that we face today. And so using their examples of what they did in the classroom to help us create 
better classroom environments for students. Um, I think that we also need to make sure that the stories from the past and the stories um, today are, we can, we evaluate whose stories are told, what stories maybe are, are not told and why. Um, I think even that phrase unlearning the hush is meaningful. We all have had a moment we've had to unlearn something where our voices have been challenged or I, or our identities marginalized. And so I think as teachers, we're in a really powerful position to shift that um, and create new narratives. Wow. So Marley, I think that's so honoring to think about the voices of educators historically, and particularly the group of educators that you had the opportunity to work with during your doctoral research. And so you have that those experiences and those anecdotal stories, but you also are really keen into research. And so thinking about how do we put research into practice? Yeah, I think when we think about research, I would say for me, it involves self-reflection and really that willingness to always consider new perspectives. Research is constantly evolving. I think, again, with research, we have to remember to look to our past as well. Um, I'm thinking of people like Vanessa Siddle Walker, I leaned on her greatly, her research, um, Dr. Derek Allridge, they do phenomenal research that really can help us not feel the weight of doing this alone. It really can be a shared endeavor. Um, and then I think just bringing in oral histories and stories and that reminder to unlearn are all important parts of putting research into practice. Um, research requires us to consider things that we might have overlooked. And I think um, what I appreciate about Brittany and I is I think research is also collaborative and sometimes we forget that it becomes so solitary. Um, and so even within this framework, um, I wanted to create something that allowed me to continue my collaboration with educators I respect. And so, you know, Brittany's gonna, um, I'm gonna lean on her heavily for the unlearning piece. And again, I just think that that bringing in that collaborative piece makes everything feel less daunting. Brittany, what do you, any thoughts? I love, I love the emphasis on, on story and on this idea of anecdotal evidence slash qualitative data as being, I think sometimes there's a stigma around qualitative research and yet there is such power, right? In the storytelling and in these narratives and in data collection that is rooted in story, whether that's ethnography, any sort of interviewing, any sort of opportunities, especially as a researcher, and I resonate with this from learning from loss, also having the opportunities to receive loss narratives from practitioners. Um, there's something really special and vulnerable in that exchange between researcher and quote-unquote subject or storyteller um, that is really, I think, representative of much of what Marley and I try to put into our pedagogy or into our practice also, right? This uh, this energy and this potential for learning that happens when we make ourselves vulnerable, when we leverage our stories. And so I really appreciate that element of Marley's research. And then of course, the ways in which she has taken those stories to the next level through the literature review, through the ways in which you can then make stories into um, actionable, you know, legitimate research. Um, but I think that there's a lot to just learn from that process and to pass along to students. And ultimately, that idea that lived experience counts um, 
that there is such wisdom in that. And I know that's something that I have shared with teens and Marla, you've shared with teens, even even writing op-eds, for example, um, and speaking with young people about data collection and different types of evidence and really wanting to underscore this idea that lived experience, personal experience is evidence and does give you credibility and does give you voice. And so um, that's one connection that I'm making, just listening to you speak, Marley, about the connection between your own sort of research and also teaching and, and praxis that I resonate with. Thank you so much. And, you know, I think it's so important that we start by thinking about the contextual kind of underpinnings of the HUSH framework, because we oftentimes do hear the word research, um, especially in the education space right now, and really considering multiple forms of of research and that importance of ethnography, I think, um, you know, as educators, we have leaned heavily into that and there's so much for us to learn. I think what I really want to jump into is this idea of creating a framework. Marley, you have created the Hush framework and there's a lot of frameworks out there for educators. And I know that something that you were really focused on was that this framework would be user-friendly. And so how did you go about crafting something that could be used by practitioners all around the country or even around the world? That's a good question. I think I really started with the stories of the women that I collected. And then I think as I was thinking through this, just in my years of teaching, sometimes I think we overlook the value of what our students have told us works well. And so I really tried to take into consideration, what have I done? What have students told me that I've done in my own teaching practices that has that has been effective. And that always involved stories, the ability to build relationships, the ability to self-reflect. And so I think a user-friendly fra framework needs to support and guide us towards kind of the heart of that, right? Creating better and more inclusive classrooms. Um, and ultimately, I think one of the things my participants did is they really prepared their students to enter the world as civic beings. That was such an important goal. And so as our as we think about how are we sending students into this world that's becoming more diverse, I think that needs to be kind of at the forefront of our minds. How are we preparing students to enter this diversified world that we're living in? Um, I also think that a user-friendly framework means it needs to be interdisciplinary. Um, simple to use and apply, one that moves us towards things that are actionable and not just, um, I think some of the frameworks maybe feel like, how do I really put this into action? And so I tried to consider making sure that I built something that teachers would feel like they could see right away. Um, and then also, instead of just relying kind of on terminology, which I think sometimes makes things feel more heavy and difficult to navigate. This is really, really about centering voices of marginalized people um, and giving students the opportunity for perspective sharing, which has lots and lots of power that I think sometimes we, um, as Brittany kind of spoke about, we over overlook the importance of um, of oral histories and ethnographies. So this is, um, I think also we need something that can seamlessly apply to all grade levels and state standards, right? So all of those things um, I tried to build in. Brittany, any wow. thoughts? <laughs> That's a lot. 
just lots of snaps and claps to that, Marley. I'm eager for you to dive into talking about your framework, but just definitely wanting to underscore the importance of perspective taking and empathy. And I'll speak later on in our conversation a little bit about that from a developmental perspective too. Thanks. So finally, before we dive into the actual framework itself and the rationale for needing a framework today, I think it's important for us to address some concerns that educators have. And um, unfortunately, there are some spaces where teachers are fearful of getting in trouble or being called out or being penalized for developing inclusive spaces in really explicit ways. So Marley and Brittany, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Um, yeah, I think this is something that we've seen both in the ABAR DEI world and in the SEL grief trauma-informed world, right? I think this is really a pervasive sort of issue. And what strikes me and Marley and I talk about this a lot is the sort of politicization of what feels like very deeply human issues. And so often we let kind of fights about semantics or, you know, considering the exact right terminology, not that we're, words we know hold so much power, right? I always say words hold the power to harm and to heal. And so certainly we need to be mindful of our language, but often we get into um, kind of higher level and very heated arguments in our society right now, right? And within the field of education right now that overlooks the issues at root, which are so often empathy, equity, um, care, right? And and things that feel very, not simple, but uh, in some ways, simple truths and, and profound truths about what it means to be human and what it means to create space for other fellow human beings um, and to hold compassion for other people's lived realities and truths. And so often um, when we get into those sort of more heated debates within the field, we lose sight of the humans that are actually at play, both young people and, and adults. So Marley, eager to hear from you, but I've been grappling with that in the SEL world for sure. Yeah, I love that you mentioned, um, mentioned all of that, Brittany. And I think really, that's what really stood out to me before there were terms for a lot of this um, the teachers that I interviewed were doing it, right? They were doing the whole child approach. They were doing SEL. They were doing ABAR work. There weren't names for it then. Um, but again, I think it was that relationship and community connection that was really at the heart. And so you just did what was best for kids. You loved kids and everything else kind of followed. And that does sound like um, maybe... It's too simple, but I think I agree with Brittany that sometimes moving back to simplistic approaches instead of, um, I mean, really what we want to do is do our best for kids. So I think like that requires having high expectations of our students. I think when I was thinking through this framework, it also requires having high expectations of ourselves um, and really creating, when we talk about like a student-centered classroom, I think that that means we do the hard work along with our students and, and we do that modeling. And I think that we also need to have those consistent um, practices that kind of usher in that celebration of all people, all students. We're providing those windows and mirrors um, 
And I think that's really, those are the things that are ultimately your students are gonna see. Um, and so you don't really need the sign, right? You don't need the safe space sign if you're doing this consistently. Students know your classroom is safe. Um, and that's where they will gravitate, I think, if that if you set that culture up in your classroom. Wow, thank you. Thank you both. And I think it's important for us to to talk about it and to name what's happening politically and what's happening for many teachers in their spaces. Is there anything else either of you would like to add in terms of context, um, in terms of noticings of things that trends you've seen or information that you'd want to share with our listeners that really emphasize the why? I think, you know, we've, Brittany and I talk a, a lot about this, but I think just um, we have to remember not all teaching programs offer pre-service teacher, pre-service teachers the foundation that they need uh, to feel like they can step into a space and approach grief, trauma, race, all of the things that are, that are happening in our world. And so I think anything that we can offer um, as a tool and not all tool tools work for all teachers, but I think that putting things out in this world that makes teaching less um, difficult to navigate is ultimately a good thing. And, and then I think that's part of the work as a teacher, you, you try different things and different approaches and um, using that innovation, I think was another thing that I saw from my teachers that I interviewed, they were so innovative. Um, and again, always tying things back to the community, right? So when, for example, they could not afford a copy machine, a mimeograph machine, um, the community held bake sales and they pooled their money together to buy one. Like, that's amazing. Um, so we're always, I think, going to be faced with how do we have the resources? How do we have the bandwidth? How do we how do we navigate this hard time, these hard times? But I think leaning on colleagues and community, and then all of the tools that may or may not work for us specifically, I think are are helpful. Well, Marley, thank you. So let's dive into your framework. The HUSH framework is a scaffold, really, as we've kind of led on to now, and I'm sure listeners are like, okay, get on with it. What is it? But you know, it's that idea that how can we support teachers and, and systems that are really striving to create lessons or units or experiences in their classrooms that are culturally sustaining while also simultaneously working to dismantle implicit bias and systemic systems of oppression. And so taking such a complex idea and creating an elegant yet simple framework for teachers is this incredible gift of synthesis that you have, Marley, and cannot wait to hear from you and Brittany as you unpack what is the HUSH framework and what is it all about? So the HUSH framework relies on four core areas and focuses on centering marginalized histories and people to naturally allow for classroom spaces to celebrate and learn about other perspectives. So um, our first H stands for histories and that allows and invites teachers to bring in oral histories and stories from marginalized perspectives. Um, I like to think of this as unearthing moments or people or history that we wish we would have known sooner. Um, and students benefit 
from knowing earlier. So I'm thinking about in my um, graduate program, how many adults didn't know about internment camps. Um, and, and so any moment as you're as an educator where you're like, oh, I wish I would have known that sooner. That's how I like to think of this. Um, this component actually urges us to think outside of the box of typically celebrated figures and moments. And um, it's also a space that's collaborative and can connect again to that community piece. So I'm thinking about everyday people who do incredible things, even within our own communities. A good example of this would be um, Bob Moses, Dr. Joyce Ladner. They were really uh, formative in starting SNCC, which is was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And that's a perfect example of um, people who could be accessed to share um, about in a really important histories and stories that matter. And then our, our you is for unlearning, which I think this is a unique piece of the framework. It asks us to unlearn our blind spots, our bias, our misinformation, and maybe our own prejudgments um, that we have, whether it's conscious or, or not. Um, this is a component that involves the teacher and the students, but it really relies on the student, on the teacher to model. So through bell work, through journaling, through discussion, um, if you're going to maybe do a lesson that involves a certain historical person, maybe walking through in, bell, in a bell work, what, what might, <clears throat> might our society um, have misinformation about this person? Um, and walking through that and modeling that for students, um, I think we have to always kind of as educators examine our own gaps that we hold so that we can move our own thinking forward. Um, so we see the full potential of all students. And then the S is for stories, which Brittany and I have kind of talked about how important that is. And it involves connecting and learning through discussions, so Socratic seminars, allowing students to do projects that um, get them speaking and sharing different aspects of their life. Um, this is an area that asks students to connect to the content. And when we think about, I think one of the issues today, it's how do we get students really engaged with content? Well, if we can connect it to their world and their realities, I think that creates and builds that automatic connection. So um, again, this might involve a whole group discussion, individual written responses, um, things of that nature. And, it, and it's with the goal of appreciating and learning from each other. And then lastly, the H, which I'm going to lean on Brittany here to jump in and talk about, but that healing piece, I think sometimes we have not considered how important that is. And that's the ultimate goal, right, is to get to this place of justice, which has to involve healing. It acknowledges um, that cultural competencies and DEI work cannot be successful without having this goal, at least, of healing. Um, ultimately, we want to heal from hurt, from trauma, from grief, from dissension. And so I think, again, this is that connection piece, allowing collaboration, discussion, reflection, um, I think is really important. And I think it reinforces this need for coalition and for empathy. And then I want Brittany to kind of jump in here because this is definitely her area of expertise. Um, yeah, thank you, Marley. I really appreciate you know your sharing this really lovely, elegant, yet also actionable, right, framework for teachers of all sort of ages and spaces in education. 
Um, the healing piece, the first thing that comes to mind for me is this idea that teachers modeling their own learning, their own unlearning, um, connects with something that I wrote about in Learning from Loss, which I called lateral teaching or thinking about side by side, kind of sitting you know, next to a student. If we just think about that image for a minute and how even that image sort of contrasts the hierarchical sort of model that we usually see in images of teaching where, you know, teachers is standing at the front of the room, like lecturing um, unto the students, right? This idea of sitting side by side and engaging in work together, I think holds so much potential um, for learning on learning and healing um, that we're in the trenches with young people also, and that we can't ask something of students that we're not also willing to engage in ourselves or do, you know, ourselves. And so much of this work starts with self-work when we're thinking about equity, when we're thinking about trauma-informed teaching, experiences of grief and loss, and our own sort of reactions um, to students' experiences of loss that they might bring into to curricula, um, which certainly relates also to equity, right? And, and un heard and untold stories because there's grief around that. Um, the idea of what researchers call teacher SEC or teacher social emotional competency. Um, we know that that's a huge predictor of students, social emotional learning and also their social emotional well-being in the classroom. And so teachers own ability, right? To cultivate their social emotional skills, competencies, their own well-being has that direct impact um, by extension on young people. And so there's also that huge power of modeling the work um, for young people, not only doing the work for ourselves and to be better teachers, but to teach by way of um, doing that self-work, whether that be, um, or no matter you know what kind of subset within healing and equity work um, that is. So incorporating and reading and sharing all of the types of stories that Marley, your framework promotes offers, I think all of us opportunities to consider um, the intersections, which I, I spoke about already today, equity and empathy, right? And Marley, you mentioned earlier, third person perspective taking skills. We know that that's so important in the cultivation of empathy, this ability to think in another person's shoes, right? And this is something that adolescent um, brain development enables. And so in high school, middle school, high school, students are, are even more able to engage in some of these skills, to understand stories in a different way, to take third person perspectives um, and learn from them in, in a deeper, richer way. Um, and so all, all of this is really rooting back in the idea of collaboration, of storytelling, and the idea of silence, right, of hush, which I love that term. I, I've really been thinking about that term um, ever since I learned of, of your work, Marley, and heard about um, your, your research carries such, I think, resonant sort of implications from an SEL perspective, if we think about the ways in which naming and expression of emotions is hushed or culturally coded sometimes in Western society, right? Just even the very sort of basic labeling of what we might think of as negative affect, just naming grief, sadness, anger. Um, the feelings wheel is a great tool that I use in SEL um, curricula. And it's this 
image, right, that shows us the breakdown of emotions that we all have, and it gets super granular. So like taking anger and like breaking that down into three or four different emotions that we don't always think about our internal experience with such focus and intentionality, let alone name and, and share it. Um, and so all of that is is an element of hush, and certainly grief is an element of hush. Um, and then in the reverse of that, the, the reality that when any life experience is hushed, that in turn creates grief. And so there's a term disenfranchised grief, which means grief that's not socially or societally recognized or validated. Um, and we know that it's much harder for especially young people to sort of achieve well-being or adjust when they're grappling with that disenfranchised grief. We might think about something like um, losing a loved one to suicide or experiencing a miscarriage, right? These are types of losses that in Western society, at least, still carry a stigma, right? Still carry a hush. And so not only is that experience hushed, but then the requisite grief is sort of reinforced just by the fact that society tells us not to tell our stories. Um, and especially for young people who are still in development, right, still creating um, what we call internal working models of the world around them, of relationships, of self-concept and confidence, um, understanding their own story, they're absorbing these messages, right, that we communicate through our conversations, through our curricula, through our actions in the classroom, um, and, and they can internalize that. And so hushes can be perpetuated or disrupted um, and, and really influence the development of young people and create those safe spaces that Marley um, was talking about, right? So communicating what what is okay to, to communicate, right? How we how we let other people know that it's okay to share their story, to bring their story into the classroom and to learn from lived experience. Um, and lastly, I'll, I'll just mention that I think of Elliot Eisner's idea of explicit curricula, implicit curricula, and then null curricula. And that last one means that what is not included in our lesson plans, what is not included in our classroom conversations, is just as prevalent and relevant and impactful for students as what is included. And so that to me beautifully encapsulates that idea of the hush, that when we are choosing not to include voices, experiences, et cetera, in our learning environments, um, that in itself is still teaching. So those absences and those silences um, matter and are still forming that space for students. So I love that this framework can fill fill that null curricula, I suppose, and, and bring in instead explicit curricula um, regarding equity and storytelling and healing, um, which certainly touches on grief and SEL more broadly. Wow. Brittany, thank you so much. Um, you gave us a lot to think about in terms of the the research behind social emotional learning and how it can play a role in a classroom in really authentic ways that are really supportive for students or on the converse can be really damaging for students. Marley, do you mind walking us through an example? Because I think that would really bring your framework to life and the research and information that Brittany shared into context. 
Yeah. So um, I'm thinking about if you did, I used the poem Lost Women um, in my dissertation. It's one of my favorite poems. And so I'm thinking you could do a whole unit on women and highlight women who um, maybe aren't uh, typically acknowledged. So um, someone like a Yuri Kochiyama, uh, Dr. Joyce Ladner, and a Mildred Loving. If you paired those three women together, um, you think about the impact, you could look at them uh, from the 1960s, from a time period perspective, and the ways in which they impacted society. You could look at it racially. Um, Mildred Loving, I just found out, was um, actually part Native American, which I was like, oh my goodness, right? We never hear that about her. Um, we know she was in an interracial relationship and that she really advocated for the Virginia law of not being able to have interracial marriage to be dismantled, but I never knew. Did you all know that? I was like, I did not know that. Um, so, so just those aha moments of these incredible women. And then you could also even look at coalitions. Um, so Yuri Kochiyama worked brilliantly across all different color lines um, to really advocate for Asian American rights, for Black rights. Um, she was good friends with Malcolm X. Um, and then Dr. Joyce Ladner is an example of someone who is alive today and amazing. She was the first uh, black female president at Howard. She served as an interim president at Howard University. She came from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and really was uh, foundational in SNCC and civil rights and voting rights. She started the first chapter of the NAACP in Hattiesburg, Mississippi for young people. Um, just amazing. So I just think about all of the knowledge and the breadth that these three women have. And so I think that would be a perfect example of walking through that framework, um, doing that unlearning, looking at those three histories, letting students do some comparing and contrasting, and then bringing in um, at the end that healing piece where there's a discussion and, you know, you let students talk through what does it what does it look like now to know this information? Um, and I know for me personally, I think if I would have been more aware of this ancestral power and heroes that were really kind of behind me, um, I just wonder what I would have done, uh, what I would have been capable of as a student in a younger version of myself. And so I think, you know, that's a perfect example of like a, a unit, how you could kind of apply that to these three phenomenal um, women and show empowerment in all these different perspectives, Asian American, Black, Native American women. Um, so. Thank you. That was really helpful to hear and to hear your think aloud. Uh, I just wanted to start jotting things down. And I was thinking about all sorts of applications in a classroom from a social studies perspective to language arts, you know, the reading, the writing, the speaking, the listening, um, so many ways for us to really apply those skills of readers and writers and thinkers, but with content and a perspective that's so engaging for kids and really gets their minds going. And I think that takes me back to you, Brittany. I think about, you know, the SEL work and kind of our context right now. And in, in some spaces it's become um, almost programmatic. And so when you think about the HUSH framework, and you think about kind of integrated SEL work, what are some of your thoughts in that area? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly the healing element of storytelling comes to mind. We know that, you know, opportunities to both tell our story and receive other people's stories actually creates in the brain a neurochemical called oxytocin, which is what creates feelings of connection and empathy. And so we like neurobiologically are better able to connect with and understand other people when we have those opportunities to engage with story. And that could be historical stories. That could be the stories that students and teachers bring with them into the space. I think about one of the most impactful experiences I actually had as a student was in high school. Um, we had cultural identity development nights. They called them CID. And I think about this as sort of a paragon of SEL and also this idea of the HUSH framework. Um, it was it was held after school once a month in the evening. Um, students, staff, and faculty were invited to tell a story about something that impacted who they are. It was totally open-ended. Um, they could write their story out and read it aloud. They could just go off the cuff. Um, and the the energy in, in that room, um, the connections that happened in that room, the ways in which hearing um, folks who held different roles within the school community, um, it broke down these sort of divides just within the learning environment of we saw each other in different ways. We knew, you know, new information about the lived experiences and expertise that we brought into the space. You know, it's high school, there's cliques, right? All of a sudden, cliques were being dissolved. And after sharing that space and there were parameters, you know, of not talking about other people's stories after witnessing them in that room. But I remember like those individuals would greet each other differently on campus for months to come, right? And would just view one another from a more empathic and, and different perspective. And so I think about that as such an incredible um, example of, I guess, both integrating culturally responsive um, and ide identity development centric programming and SEL in also a really accessible and easy way, right? All of, all that was was just opening a space for folks in the room to talk about who they are and why. Um, and isn't that both so simple and complex all at once? And so that's something that comes to mind for SEL in terms of actionability, something that's implementable right away. Um, and I also want to just name that idea of mirrors and windows, Marley, how we can see ourselves in historical narratives. Um, something comes to mind for me, Maureen Ann Nolan is an incredible um, disability rights activist who in the 70s fought to attend college by phone. Um, this was before online learning. Of course, this was in an era where um, higher ed was very much the traditional residential in-person program. Um, and this woman, an activist who has a number of physical disabilities, like really uh, waged this campaign against a number of colleges who would not allow for any sort of, um, this is pre-ADA also, any sort of accommodations to attend higher ed. Um, I don't often share this, but Marley, you're inspiring me to say that I also, I have an invisible physical disability and I had a similar sort of negotiation process in higher ed of finding the right fit. 
and seeing that story from history um, that totally mirrored exactly what I was going through, trying to advocate for myself in um, the higher ed environment pre-COVID when online learning was still stigmatized. Seeing that, even though it was historical, was like such a moment of of inspiration, of motivation, of like somebody has walked in these shoes before and look what they did, you know? And so I can also like pursue my education. Um, and hopefully that also extends beyond me, right? Of like that inspiration then is something you can pass along to your students too. So um, yeah, that, that just comes to mind of the power of history. We think about textbooks, but it's so much more. Um, and it's something that's very much alive. Well, and Brittany, you're making me also think about just even the power of mentoring. I think that's another key piece that that really is foundational to this framework. And again, the educators I spoke to were so great at that. And my own experiences in education that have been positive were being a mentor to others and then also finding my mentors. Um, I think that that's that's something that again has such incredible power. And as Brittany said, it's like that modeling of um, voice to people is really, I think really can bring about change and action. And that gives new meaning to the term mentor texts too, right? Because mentors can be characters, can be historical figures. Mentors aren't necessarily always um, people who are immediately accessible to you in the space. You can find mentoring anywhere. Wow. I think that, you know, listening to both of you really, really dive into the framework, the power of the framework, the scientific research that backs up the HUSH framework, and then the impact on students, the impact of having opportunities to think about stories and to think about histories from different perspectives is so powerful and not just in that moment, but then forever and ever and ever. And so as we wrap up today, I know we could probably continue talking all afternoon, but I think it's about time we bring our conversation to a close. And so last words, what, um, what would you like our listeners to consider as they're perusing the show notes? I know we're going to drop an explanation and a graphic of the Hush framework in the show notes. So I hope that anybody's interested in learning more will go there and find that article and that piece and really, really dive into those reflection questions. But in closing, what would you love for our listeners to consider? I would love, um, I recently saw this post and I cannot remember where it's from, but I thought it was so brilliant. And what it said was this, it said, um, we looked at our shared past together and did the work of repair. What is one thing we did? And I um, just thought, wow, if we can just even think of that as our daily dose of like, personal development and professional development, I think that that's really the North Star, right? We want to get to that place of repair. And so finding ways and tools to get to that place is ultimately um, the goal. So I'm hoping that this framework um, adds uh, a tool for, for a pre-service or current teacher um, that can hopefully move them in that space of repair and healing and um, progress. And that idea of repair is so important in the trauma-informed ed world also. Interactive repair, the ability to connect with somebody after disagreement, after falling out you know, from different perspectives, 
um, is key to healing and also isn't that so representative circling all the way back to the start of our conversation about where we're at right now in the world of education in a lot of ways. And so I love Marley that you're giving us this actionable way in to thinking about repair and thinking about care and really centering that in a way that is approachable no matter where we're at in terms of the education field slash youth work field, because really this is a framework that applies to anybody, even if you're not a traditional classroom teacher. Absolutely. And I just want to thank both of you for taking such complex ideas and helping make them accessible to all teachers and even folks in other fields. As you mentioned, Brittany, I think that, you know, early in our conversation, Marley, you said something about how teachers have been doing a lot of this work for a long time. And maybe it didn't have names, but what was most important is that students were at the center and loving students for who they are and supporting them in their growth and thinking about the ways in which we can and engage in this repair work seems so important today and tomorrow and the tomorrow after that. So I just want to thank you both from the bottom of my heart. And I look forward to the next time we all get to be together. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thank you, Michelle. Appreciate it. We're still recording until I find the button. There we go. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.